Acheron, The Demon King, by Morgan Huxley. Find more great stories at audioiron.com. Chapter 9 Stuart felt the girl slip away, but the rules for this rite were clear. He had studied them for decades. They all had. The Dark Lord could do what he willed in his sanctuary, and the girl was their offering. As expected, the Birchard cards had opened the way in her. She had moved to that realm between worlds, a place Acheron could reach. So no one went to her when she cried out. They dutifully ignored her shrieks of terror until the end of the ritual when twelve of their thirteen dutifully filed out along the prescribed path. These were the most devout of the faithful, twelve among several thousand around the world who had been selected to serve the Dark Lord as direct acolytes. Only Stuart did not leave. Instead he walked toward the girl who looked like a corpse on the black marble slab. She was catatonic, eyes staring, mouth open. She looked smaller than the five and a half feet he knew she was, and younger than the twenty-four years he knew she owned. He knew she had seen what he could not. She had been bred to serve her purpose and it was a cup he could not take from her lips. Everyone had unpleasant duties to perform, and a direct relationship with the demanding god was to be Mary's. He collected her from the stone and carried her upstairs. Mary? said Stuart, an hour later. He shook her arm gently and called her name again. Mary, are you feeling all right? You look quite pale. I do? she asked. She stirred and found she was sitting in a spacious kitchen surrounded by men wearing black robes and that she was dressed in one too. How had she come to be here? There had been singing. Then she'd been lying down. Then she'd seen something. It had been horrible, but she couldn't remember what it was. Now she was here in a kitchen with a midnight meal laid out on the table beside her. A plate at her elbow was filled with food as if waiting for her to take a bite, but her throat felt so raw and sore. The last thing on earth she wanted to do was eat. Had she fainted? Who had dressed her and brought her here? Is it over? She asked the concerned faces. She prayed that it was so. She didn't want to remain in this odd house another minute. When she got home she could call David and ask him to let her join him in Japan. He loved her, didn't he? She would tell him everything. She would explain why she had to get away from these terrible men. I want to go home, she said. She turned to look at Stuart who was eyeing her with utter calm, and she said I want you to take me home. We have to leave now. Do you understand? I want to go right away. Young lady. Mary turned to find the old Russian man had taken her arm. His pale blue eyes were earnest as he regarded her. There are many adverse influences that may come to trouble you in this important time. You must remain here to be protected. Who are you? She demanded. What are you talking about? I want to go. I have to leave her as soon as possible. Stuart, now behind her, spoke. Serge is just saying you may stay here if you like Mary. This house is open to you as it is to all society members. Yes, this is what I mean, said the man earnestly. Stay here so we can protect you. From what? She asked, turning to look at Stuart. What do I need to be protected from? You are safer than you have ever been, Stuart said calmly. Please forgive us. We're overprotective. Come with me. I'll drive you back right away. It's a good time for both of us to leave since I have class in about six hours. He led her from the room then back up the stairs and into the bathroom. He stood outside while she changed into the clothes she had arrived in. He took her across the hall to another door. He asked her to wait for him. He stepped through the door, changed into his own clothes, 
then stepped out again. At long last he led her down the grand staircase, through the great room with the huge windows, down the short flight of stairs into the garage. He helped her into the Jaguar then slipped himself into the driver's seat. You really have to forgive them, he said. You were the first female member in more than two decades and some of them are old enough to be your grandfather. What happened down there? She said. I saw someone. He spoke to me. I can't remember who it was or what he said. But it was horrible. She curled her legs onto the seat, wrapped her arms around them, and lay her head against the seat. I don't know. Perhaps it was one of those deities you don't believe in, he said lightly. I think you are just tired and still recovering from the excitement earlier this week. You simply wandered off and we found you taking a nap in a most uncomfortable place. She looked out the car windows and saw that they were driving by the seashore. Where are we? She asked. We must be a hundred miles from home. You don't need to worry about that, he said. Why don't you rest? You've had a very long night. As if his suggestion were a command, she felt exhaustion wash over her. Mary awoke in her own bed late the next morning. She had some dim memory of arriving at home just before dawn and of Stuart opening her door. While he watched she had taken off her clothes, climbed into a nightgown, and then slept like the dead. She reached for the phone, dialed Margaret's number, and once again, her friend's phone rang endlessly. She wasn't even passed along to a messaging machine. Biting her lip, she threw off the bedclothes, stood up, and tried to decide what to do. She simply had to speak to Margaret. The answer came quite suddenly. Margaret was at the British Museum, so she would go there. It was only three hours or so by car. Perhaps she should even take the train so she wouldn't have to park in the city. Energized, Mary dove into the shower and called a cab. Half an hour later she was on an express train. By late afternoon she was walking between the three-story columns that supported the portico of the British Museum. They reminded her of even larger columns holding up giant arches underground. Had it all been a dream? Some kind of hallucination they'd made her have? She knew they had hypnotized her. Maybe nothing she remembered was real. Can I help you? The woman on the other side of the round reception desk managed to look both irritated and efficient as she pushed a lock of smooth black hair over an ear and adjusted her red-rimmed glasses. I'm looking for a researcher, said Mary. Margaret Mills. She's working with your dolls. Through those doors, past the book tables, to the reserved area, said the woman pointing. Mary nodded. She clicked across the long marble floor and cursed the low-heeled shoes she had chosen to wear. Margaret, doubtless, would be in slacks and sensible rubber-soled shoes, but Mary hadn't wanted to make a bad impression on any of her associates. The book room, a huge library featuring dozens of towering bookshelves, was so dimly lit she had to pause in the doorway to give her eyes time to adjust. First, she made out dozens of famous books in hermetically sealed glass cases, then she saw hundreds of readers at long wooden tables reverently turning pages using rubber-tipped sticks or cotton gloves. At the back of the room Mary saw a long reference desk, and behind it an open door to more normal lighting and a modern office. I'm looking for Margaret Mills, she whispered to the man behind the desk. Is she expecting you? The man asked in a normal tone of voice. He looked like a turn-of-the-century banker. Tall, impossibly slender, dressed in a three-piece tweed suit. I called ahead, she said, feeling awkward. The man sighed, picked up a phone, and spoke to someone. He turned back to her. Your name? He demanded. Mary, she said. 
Mary, he said to the phone. A moment later he returned the phone to the cradle. She'll be here to collect you in a moment. Please fill out this form and write your full name and address on the badge. Mary followed his instructions and by the time Margaret whisked out of the brightly lit door behind him, Mary was wearing a numbered label that had her name and address on it. My God! Where have you been? Margaret demanded as she led Mary through the door into the well-lit office space. There were dozens of cubicles in the room, each equipped with smooth tables, a phone, a computer and a desk drawer. Dozens of people were at work, even though it was late afternoon. I've tried to call you almost every day. You've tried to call me? I can't get through to you at all. Quiet. A sharp-faced small man barked as he turned to scowl at them. Let's go up to my work area, Margaret said. We can talk there. A few minutes later Mary stood in a vast gallery of dolls, each more human than the last. Some were as simple as rag dolls with drawn faces, others were porcelain kings and queens dressed in jeweled fabrics. Oddly, she thought some of the dolls were rather similar to those in Madame Bouchard's tarot cards. Perhaps they had been born in the same period. I was worried about you, said Margaret. Then I thought maybe you'd gone off to Japan with David. I think I may be in trouble, said Mary. What's happened? Margaret, who had returned to prepping a doll for a photograph, looked up at Mary with concern. Has something gone wrong between you and your young man? Margaret, as if mocking her own age, always referred to David as Mary's young man, which at one time had been quite amusing. Now the appellation comforted Mary. Yes, stolid, normal, predictable David was indeed her young man. You remember Stuart, the man who came to Beltane? said Mary. Well, I think I've done something silly. Margaret sat down on a folding chair near the table that held the doll and gestured at a second chair for Mary. I knew those three were up to no good, she said. Have you done something unfortunate with him? David is still away I suppose. Yes, he is, said Mary, as she sat down. We all make mistakes, said Margaret. Surely he will understand. You are young, alone. It's nothing like that, said Mary, knowing Margaret thought she was confessing to a sexual indiscretion. You know, I did a little research on your archaeologist. He's quite well known here, as was his father. Quite wealthy they say. He's certainly handsome enough to turn anyone's head. No, Mary felt the conversation slipping away entirely. If only what she had done was as simple as an affair. You have two options, said Margaret. Forget the matter entirely, as men so frequently do, or confess everything to David and ask his forgiveness. Those men asked me to join a group, protested Mary. Margaret looked startled, then knowing. Ah, one of those odd sex clubs the rich and famous fancy, she paused for a moment's reflection. You know, I can't imagine why you shouldn't pretend the whole thing never happened. If you like you can come spend a few days up here until they lose interest in you. Mary shook her head. There was simply nowhere to begin, no way to explain. Of course you could expose them, said Margaret. That's easy enough. But I suppose it could be quite dangerous. Men like that, with reputations to maintain, sometimes do terrible things to protect their secrets. Dangerous, echoed Mary. It was odd that Margaret should mention that. Actually, it might well be dangerous for Margaret to hear Mary's confession. And what was the point of telling her what had happened? What could she do? A wave of self-pity washed over Mary. Margaret, sensing her despair, awkwardly patted her shoulders. Don't worry, 
she said. I'm sure you've just become lonely and overwrought. It happens to everyone. I don't think so, said Mary. Someone entered the gallery and Margaret turned around. That's my photographer. I have to get back to work. We're behind schedule. Why did you spend the night and we can chat more? Mary shook her head. Obviously, she had to go home, go back to Stuart, and say she was done with their strange game. She had no idea how she'd allowed herself to become so involved in this madness, but now she had come to her senses. Don't tell anyone I came, Mary said as she stood. If I need your help, I'll come back. But I think I can sort things out on my own. I see how stupid I've been. Margaret stood, gave her a hard, awkward hug. I'm glad I could help you. I got into scrapes when I was young. It is something we all go through. And then Margaret turned to greet the long-haired photographer who had begun adjusting the clothes on the doll. No, she said. Wear gloves. The fabric can't be touched. Mary left without further conversation. She took the tube to the station, boarded the first train leaving for Cambridge, and settled in for a long, non-express trip. When she arrived home by cab late in the evening, she saw the light in the barn was on. She dropped her overnight bag, once again unused, on the couch in her house, then walked through the kitchen door, through the grass, into her workroom. She found Stuart sitting in the loft, his feet hanging over the edge. How was Margaret? he asked. I don't know what you are talking about, she said uncomfortably. She didn't know how to challenge him over entering her barn, or how to tell him that she had once again changed her mind regarding the society. He cocked his head to one side, studied her, then shook his head a little as if she were a troublesome child. With an easy motion he swung himself onto the ladder and then, after lowering himself a few steps, dropped to the floor. You need some time off, he said. Why don't I just leave you alone for a few days, let you catch your breath and think things over? That would be nice, she said, wondering if it were true. He stopped by the barn door, then turned around. Please call me if you need anything. Mary watched Stuart leave with very mixed feelings. She wanted to be with him, to continue their lessons, and yet she feared him and the men she had sworn an oath to. How could such diverse feelings all be simultaneously true? Not long after Mary heard Stuart's car drive away, she returned to the house. In its vast silence she checked the messages on her landline only to find that there were none. With a thought for all the times Margaret had said she had tried to call her, and the lack of any calls from Elizabeth or even David, she examined the device. When she called it with her cell phone, it rang normally then offered to take a message. Determined to connect to someone, anyone, she called David's Tokyo phone number. When he didn't pick up, she realized it was daylight there so he was probably at work. She left a message on the hotel phone asking him to call her, then she called Elizabeth, Margaret, Jane, and Lillian. She dutifully left messages on all their machines, even though Lillian said that she would be traveling for another two weeks and not to bother. Feeling exhausted and traumatized, she put herself to bed. The next morning she went grocery shopping, stopped by the library, and then purchased more clay. When she came home, she found two messages, one from Jane and the other from Elizabeth. Jane came to dinner that evening, and though she was well under three months along Mary thought she could detect a slight swelling around her middle. Over spaghetti and salad, she regaled Mary with all the changes she'd made in her house since the doctor had confirmed the pregnancy. At first, I was afraid to talk about the baby, to do anything about it. I didn't want to make it go away, 
But then I decided that was silly, she said smiling. She brushed her blonde hair over her ear, looked at her plate. It seems as if everything is going to go fine. Of course, something could happen. It's possible, but somehow I feel it won't. I'm sure you're right, said Mary, thinking of Beltane. She wondered if it were true. If she decided to abandon the coven, would her friends be punished? I thought Jason might be angry, he's only seven, but he seems ecstatic. I love him so much. I know how much he loves you, said Mary, I'm sure he'll love his little brother or sister too. Her mind returned to the oath she had made. She had promised to serve them. If they wanted to punish her for breaking that oath, hurting David or her friends would be the place to start, and who said they had to use magic to do that? You seem preoccupied, said Jane putting down her fork. Are you upset with me? Why would you ask that? I mean, I know how much you want a family, said Jane. I remember I would sometimes get very angry with people who were pregnant and couldn't talk about anything else. Mary shook her head. Please, she said, don't even think such a thing. I honestly could not be happier, she stopped, surprised by the tears that pricked her eyes. She belatedly realized that she was very happy and very jealous of her friend. Once again Mary felt she was on the outside looking in. Jane stood up, moved around the table to take her into an awkward, fragile embrace. I don't think you know what you feel, she said. I'm sorry I haven't been here more. I know David's away and everyone else is gone. No, lied Mary, pulling her closer for a moment then letting her pull away. I was just going to say that you make me feel hopeful, as if fairy tales do come true. David's not here but we will get married and we will have children. I believe that. I really do. Mary very much wished that she believed any of what she was saying. Jane settled back into her chair, took up her fork, smiled. Not fairy tales, she said, wishes. There really is magic in the world. You and your friends prove that to all of us. All our lives have been changed. Mary sat back in her chair and took a sip of wine to cover her discomfort. Why did she assume that Stuart and his friends were trying to hurt her? They had brought only happiness to her friends, were concerned for her welfare, had made her a member of their elite society. Mary suddenly wondered what was it about her past that made her so unwilling to trust good fortune? No one had done anything to hurt her. That night Mary bid Jane farewell with a light heart. For the first time in more than a week she felt relaxed, happy. Stuart had been right, she had needed a break, some time to adjust. The phone rang just as she climbed the stairs to bed and she had to race back down to pick it up. Mary? It was Elizabeth, breathless as if she too had run to the phone. Hi, said Mary. I just wanted to say I'm sorry I haven't called you. Tim and I, we've been rather tied up. Mary heard someone talking to her in the background, and Elizabeth shushed whoever it was and laughed at the same time. We are getting married. Married? Mary was taken aback. That's a bit sudden. Not really. We've known each other for years. His father and mine work at the same firm. We met years ago. I just didn't remember. I think my mom even tried to set me up on a date with him last Christmas. Again, she broke off, laughing harder this time. She came back to the phone, anyway, we are getting married in the fall and my parents and his are flying in. And that's not my only excuse for being so unavailable. I have a class that I'm really struggling with, probably because I'm very distracted. You don't need any excuses not to call me, said Mary, you're simply busy. Just send me an invitation when you have some. 
I will, she said. I can't thank you enough for helping me so much over the last year. What are you talking about? Mary couldn't imagine anything Elizabeth should be grateful to her for. I was so far from home and so lonely and so scared. You and Lillian and Jane and Margaret, I just don't know what I would have done without you and our little meetings. I used to look forward to them so much. Well I like to think we'll have more of them in the months to come, said Mary. Are you moving back to the States? No, we'll be here. After the wedding we witches can get together again. I'm going to take the craft more seriously now. There is real magic in the world. I'm so glad you are happy, said Mary. She didn't want to agree that magic was responsible for the young girl's happiness. Somehow that was a terrible thing to know. I really have to go, but I love you, said Elizabeth. I'll call you soon. And then, without waiting for a reply, she was gone. Mary returned the phone to the cradle, left the darkened sitting room and climbed up the stairs again. She took a quick shower, pulled on red silk pajamas David had given her for Christmas, then climbed into bed. She reached under her pillow, touching the ivory case containing her tarot cards to make sure they were still there, then turned off the light. David called the first thing the following morning. He sounded tired and a little unsettled. Sensing he might have something on his mind, she probed gently. Is there something bothering you? You seem a little down. Not really. It's just that the work is harder than I expected. I can do it all, but it's tiring. I work so many hours. They just gave me someone to help coordinate my work with all the other teams and that's helping a bit. She's fast, but I have to spend so much time explaining things. It will get easier, said Mary, thinking of the new girl now spending time with her distant husband. Remember how new projects always go. Difficult at first, easier later. It was something he had told her a hundred times over the years. He had always considered his business just to be passing through a difficult stage rather than doomed to failure. Of course it will, he said in a slightly lighter tone. I miss you. I don't want to be here forever. I can't wait to come home. Maybe I could come to you, she said. Sounds like there will be money to burn. That's true, he said, his voice a little cautious now but let's give it a couple of weeks. If they say they want me to stay even longer, I'll say I want you to come over as well. They will probably even pay for it. That sounds great, she said. How is your art going? He asked. Are you still making masks? I have about 40 of them in the barn that I'm going to ship out today. Take pictures, he said. You might want to make copies if they sell well. I will, she said. He always told her to do that. He seemed to think that she was capable of repeating a mask or a pot at will. She couldn't if she wanted to. In fact, what she liked most about her work was that each piece was entirely individual. Each one had its own unique personality, its own soul. I have to go, he said. I'm running late and I am supposed to be at work by seven like everyone else. I love you, she said. Call me when you can. I will, he said. Then he was gone. recording and story copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved.
Music created by D. Kurtzman and licensed from Pond5. Find more great stories at audioiron.com.